Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Copywriting is hard, and I'm not being glib about that. I was in a point where I was expected to write, I don't know, five or seven pieces of email copy a day for raising money earlier in this year. And I burned out on it. I went on vacation at Easter. I came back and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need to get mm-hmm. some space from it because copywriting is hard. And so the crutches that you start to use, you start to make things more generic and more clickbaity and all the efficiencies you can eke out in terms of the formatting or the templates or stuff like that. There's diminishing returns. At a certain point, you just have to write things. You need to get people's attention. But I think that the balance is that you also need to be asking them for something that's real. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is part of an incredible mini-series on how to mobilize your mission, brought to you by our friends at Nation Builder. Today, I'm interviewing Ian Patrick Hines. Ian is a former Nation Builder employee, a certified Nation Builder expert, and an award-winning fundraiser and website designer. Since 2012, he has been helping campaigns and causes leverage Nation Builder's software platform to build the future. And today, he's letting us inside the do's and don'ts of political fundraising so that nonprofits can avoid the downturns seen by political movements and campaigns nationwide. In this episode, we are talking all about what does and doesn't work when it comes to attracting and retaining a loyal donor base. Ian knows how to leverage game-changing tools and why it's important to differentiate between high-pressure, quick conversion campaigns and the kinds of high-quality, sustained communications that cement nonprofit partnerships. Ian offers great strategies for shifting your fundraising model from one of scarcity to abundance, fills us in on the current status of various modes of pitching, and reframes donor communication in an ongoing conversation rather than endless series of Donate Now emails. You'll learn about the inverse relationship between pseudo-urgency and long-term donor engagement, as well as how to develop a communication style that will establish your organization as a trusted advisor, rather than another source of noise simply to be tuned out. There is so much inside this episode to help you mobilize your missions, so let's dive in so you can meet Ian. Welcome, everyone. I am really excited to be here today with Ian Patrick Hines. Ian, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Why don't we start with you just telling everyone a little bit about your background with fundraising and what brings you to our conversation today? Sure. So I have been fundraising on again, off again, and mostly on since about 2013 or 2015. It's a little blurry. It's been a long time. So I got into it because I was doing a lot of work with political campaigns. And I found out that one of the things all political campaigns need is money, as it happens. And they're always happy to pay you if you can help them with money, because who wouldn't? And so that led me as a freelancer into a lot of opportunities and helped me learn a lot of things about it. And that's basically how I got into fundraising. 
Tell me, when you first started fundraising for political campaigns, what were some of the biggest surprises? What were some assumptions maybe you had made about how it would go and things that you were really surprised about when you started to do it? It's changed a lot. Political mm-hmm. fundraising has changed a lot. So when I first got involved in political fundraising, my sort of first exposures to it were a really long time ago. Actually, my very first exposure to it was in like 2003 when mm-hmm. I was still in high school and I worked a little bit with Howard Dean's campaign for president. This was forever and ever ago now, mm-hmm. literally a generation ago. And it was all built around enthusiasm and energy. And mm-hmm. We can do it. We can make the world better, that kind of stuff. And then you saw that same kind of theme bubbled up during the Obama years. There was just a lot of optimism in the fundraising Mm. and team mentality, like a can-do attitude type of thing. And then that all changed. So two things changed. One, I changed my political affiliation as I got older from being a Democrat to a Republican. But even so, that was not the impetus for the change. During the Trump years, the Republican, really on both sides, the parties shifted their fundraising approach away from this sort of like energy and optimism and more towards urgency and scarcity. Like Mm -hmm. everything is at risk. And if we don't raise this much by the deadline, which is, oh my gosh, it's in 25 minutes, the sky will fall. And that sort of became normal. I don't know whether it was the chicken or the egg, but as that started happening, also it became harder to raise money. And I don't know if that change in tenor was a response to increasing difficulty in raising money or if it caused. I really truly don't know. But I guess in hindsight, it's not really just one thing. It's many things that have surprised me. That's interesting because we're going to talk about what we can learn from political fundraising for the nonprofit sector. And I know when you and I first connected, what we should learn both in terms of what nonprofits could adopt and implement, but also what should nonprofits avoid based on Mm -hmm. what's being seen in political fundraising today. And so I think that wealth of knowledge across all those years is really helpful. So I'm curious, when you say that piece around that shift in language and energy behind the fundraising, was it just the copy that was changing or were the fundraising tactics changing? When there was that optimism, what were the tactics like? And when there's that scarcity, what are the tactics like? Yeah, I think that in the beginning, a lot of the training or the best practices advice that you might hear from people It was around the idea that there was like a ladder of engagement and you're going to try to find people and get them to follow you on Facebook. There's this sort of increasing depth of relationship with people until ultimately you're going to say, first time I ask you for money, I'm going to ask you to buy a sticker. We'd like to send you a free sticker. But if you could ship in $3 to help cover the cost of the shipping, that would be really great. And that's transactional. It breaks the ice a little bit. And then you might say, hey, it'd be really great if you could give just a dollar or $5 or $7, something nominal. And then we would ask you to make maybe a recurring donation or something like that's ratcheting up the ask. And then I think what changed probably was an increasing level of data and measurement and professionalization of it. That comes on a couple of axes. I think one, the campaigns started to rely on the online fundraising money more. It wasn't so much like a novelty or like an extra thing. It was the core of where they're raising money. I heard on a podcast some time ago that The National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is arm of the Republican Party whose job is to elect people to the Senate, the Democrats have a similar organization, they raise more than half of their money now from grassroots donors online. And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in election or something. So it's a lot of money. They loved it. The gross that they were raising went up, which is good, but also it liberated them a little bit from being responsive to major donor interests, if that Mm. makes sense. 
So it used to be maybe there were a hundred or five hundred or a thousand people who were giving the bulk of the money, and so you had to answer the phone and take them out to dinner. Now it's a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand people are each mm-hmm. giving ten dollars, and you're not really accountable to any of them. And the churn starts to matter. You're accountable to them at the ballot box, but like less on the phone call responsiveness base. As they became more dependent upon that revenue and more, not a very nice word, but addicted to that revenue, they started to say, how can we get more? So they started measuring everything. And this is not smaller organizations, but the really big ones that sort of drive the trends. So as they measured everything, they started to optimize for things. Think about like a casino business, right? Like a low-end casino business is basically like a Chuck E. Cheese, right? There's like pizzas, there's some games and tickets, and that's nice. A high-end casino business, there are no windows. There are no Mm. clocks. Everything is blinking at you all the time. And you kind of look up and you're like, oh my God, I've been here for 52 hours and I'm broke. And I think that what happened was to a degree for both parties, the fundraising started to get so optimized for conversions, gross, that they lost the thread a little bit on the relationship with people. But there's so many people that there wasn't an immediate cost to that because you just keep finding new people, if that makes sense. I think that's really interesting insight and really important for nonprofits to know and hear because there's a lot of conversation around different fundraising tactics. And there tends to be this debate around what works. There was just this thing on LinkedIn today that I was getting tagged into around, are we responsible for the experience of the donor? Does it matter if they give for different reasons? Does it matter if they give because of peer pressure? Does that mean it's bad? And it's the nonprofit's job to make sure that they're giving always Mm. from a place of consciousness and intentionality. And my argument is that nonprofits should understand how that decision impacts their future relationship with the donor, which is what you're talking about. Because I think this is what you were alluding to, to recognize that, okay, that type of giving, that emotional experience with your organization, yeah, it might bring in money in that moment. It might be optimized for conversion in that moment. But if your goal is building a ladder of engagement, if it's about having them retained, then you should look deeply at the tactics and strategies that you're using and acknowledge and accept what is being designed for. Because I think a lot of times people will do the clickbaity, flashing lights, no window, giving experience. And then when they have low donor retention numbers, they're banging their head against the wall. But they designed for, in my opinion, that reality. Yeah, I think that there's some truth in that. So there's an anecdote that kind of came to mind as you were talking about that, that I don't know firsthand, but I read about it in the New York Times. To be clear, I know some of these players or these people, but I wasn't personally involved in this particular story. So the story was a reporter with the New York Times had done like a deep dive on recurring donor numbers for Mm. President Trump's campaign versus Joe Biden's campaign. And it was a critical piece talking about, was it ethical? How did they ask people to give recurring? And setting aside all of those kind of questions, the facts of it, as I understand it, were that toward the down the stretch period of the 2020 campaign, the Trump campaign had a prompt that was pre-checked on the form that you would give weekly donations. You would recur every week. Of course, you could cancel it and you didn't have to agree to it, but it was checked by default. And it wouldn't matter how much your gift was. If you were giving $1,000, it could have been $1,000 And they did that, and they generated a lot of weekly contributions, as you might imagine. But they also refunded all of them. If you like called to complain, they would just give it back to you. They would just refund it all back. So the prompt of this news story was about this shockingly high refund rate 
from the Trump campaign. That is so out of the norm. It's usually, I don't know, mm. it's making up the numbers. It's usually 2% and it was like 15% or something really wildly high. I'm not making up those numbers, but for sense of mm-hmm. it was a lot. And so on the short term, that was great. They were in this down the stretch period and an important distinction between political campaigns and nonprofits is that political campaigns are essentially startup organizations who have to maximize market share on one day. And everything else is ancillary. We're not important. Mm-hmm. What matters is, did I get the most votes on election day? The end. And the day after election day, I can reconcile everything else. Nonprofits don't work that way. There is no election day. You're going to be there every day. And so in the political context, if you just look at it in a rational trade-offs perspective, I needed the cash flow. I can refund 100% of that money in December, but I needed it in October. And so I'll take the hit on the complaints to get the money in the near term. I would not recommend that to anybody. I would not do my own business that way. How many of those customers are going to refer me to somebody else or recommend me? And to be fair, there are undoubtedly people who gave every week and knew full well what they were doing and they were super good about it. And there are some people who accidentally gave every week and maybe never understood it. And all of the experiences in between, all Mm -hmm. of those things are probably true. That's an example of where some of these, call them gray hat political fundraising techniques, don't really transfer very well into the nonprofit space because of the way that they affect the donor's experience. Yeah, but I think it's really good to have that reflection, to even be able to use anecdotes and stories and data like that to know what to avoid sometimes. Not that I think a nonprofit would do that weekly piece, but still, I think it begs a question around auto-enrollment in lots of different types of things. So really appreciate that. I'm curious, can we talk a little bit, you were mentioning before the emails that we get about what needs to happen in the next 25 minutes or oh, else. Sure. Can we talk about time box moments and what the sweet spot is between an effective time box moment and one that feels like that? So I'll tell you from personal experience, in politics, so many of them are just completely arbitrary and made up. They're just made up. I actually have a variable that I drop in emails that's like deadline. And it just says something like tonight at midnight or it's random. It's just meant to create this sort of time boxed moment because the ask sometimes comes across better when you're asking for something specific. But we don't actually always have something specific. And the expectation is that we're going to send emails like this at least once every day. There's a lot of emails. And so you can just keep coming up with things. That's hollow. Where it's really valuable is when it's really real. When you actually have a thing, are you getting ready to launch an ad campaign? Do you have an event? Are you going to print out a thousand leaflets that you're going to hand out to people? We have to print a thousand leaflets to execute this campaign outreach plan. Every leaflet's going to cost us 32 cents, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. We need to raise this much money. And I think that if you're going to convey that kind of a goal, you should explain it. And I think that's really the thing that happens where I would, again, draw a distinction between nonprofits and campaigns. In campaigns, they have a commodified fundraising work where there are people whose job is just to be the fundraiser. And the fundraiser is not always in particularly active or even at all communication with, say, the communications department or the events people or really anybody else. They don't even know what the money is getting spent on. To the extent that in a nonprofit environment, you're able to make those connections and say, look, we're raising money for a specific need. Let me explain that need to you. And here's when we need it by. So I'm active in my church and the church will ask you for specific things. They'll say, we have to repave the parking lot Mm -hmm. and that's going to cost $150,000. It's a big parking lot. So the priest will get up in the front of the parish and he'll say, look, yeah, we pass the hat around every mass. We have a collection or whatever, but it's for real. We really need to do this parking lot. And here's why, and this is how much it's going to cost. We took three quotes and 
if you can give a little bit, that would be really helpful because it's got to get done. And we have some budget mm-hmm. for it, but it's going to put us in a bit of a place. And if you can help support us in this moment, we'd really appreciate it. That's a way more compelling ask than to be like, we need to raise another $3,000 by midnight tonight or we're going to have to shut the church down. We're going to have to close up shop. There'll be no more God if you don't give their $5 in the next. Like, would you go back to that church? No, probably not. And so that's, I think, the difference between the time box moments is if they're really time boxing. Otherwise, just say, cost money to run a business or run an organization and we need money. Mm-hmm. That's the best pitch you got. You should probably make a better pitch. Nonprofits always have time-sensitive things, whether it's related mm-hmm. to a program launching or there's always something happening a little bit more so than a political campaign where it's all leading to, as you said, that single day. And so right. in that way, there probably is more ongoing natural or organic time box moments that could be leveraged like that. But what's really interesting to me about what you said, okay, so that headline that you said, right? About if you don't give in the next 10 hours, God's going away. There's no more Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And this just got pushed back on me. So I'm curious to have this conversation with you. That is a much quicker attention grab than the pitch that the priest made to the church. Now, he had a captive audience. And so the pushback that we hear is that in this attention economy, when we really have to fight to get eyes on things for a few seconds, how do we create nuance or share real stories or be more honest and not so clickbaity and still be able to help them take an action quickly? Yeah. What would you say to that? Copywriting is hard. And I'm not being glib about that. I was in a point where I was expected to write, I don't know, five or seven pieces of email copy a day for raising money earlier in this year. And I burned out on it. I went on vacation at Easter. I came back and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need to get Mm. some space from it because copywriting is hard. And so the crutches that you start to use, you start to make things more generic and more clickbaity and all the efficiencies you can eke out in terms of the formatting or the templates or stuff like that. There's diminishing returns. At a certain point, you just have to write things. You need to get people's attention. But I think that the balance is that you also need to be asking them for something that's real. And I personally believe this is the reason, not to introduce another theme, but most of the giving is done by people 60 or 65 and up, comprise the overwhelming majority of political donations. Probably true in nonprofits as well. And I think that's partly about disposable income and sort of priorities. But I think it's also partly because people in their 30s have pretty good BS detectors. Mm-hmm. They get those emails and they're like, nah, I've got bills too, man. Like, that's not true. You say Jesus is gone in 10 minutes, but that's not real. And they're just more wise to the tactics. And so if you want to part people from their money, you should have a reason. Because the other half of it is that 65-year-old or 72-year-old person, they might really need that money. You mentioned the ethics and there was like a LinkedIn conversation you were saying. Somewhere there's a person receiving your fundraising email who's making a decision between should I buy my medicine or should I give to this organization? Ask for things that you really need. And you can use Grammarly Pro write good sentences, one sentence per paragraph with lots of line breaks in an email. There's stuff you can do to make it pop a little bit and keep people's attention, but that doesn't mean you have to lie. And I think that's the thing that I found that I was starting, not to put too specific of a word to it, but that's the thing I was starting to find in the fundraising copywriting that I'm doing. And I'm still doing it. I'm finishing out a number of political projects this cycle, and I'm trying the best as I can to not stay in a space where we're talking about real things. So if I can pull a headline and say, the news says that our opponents are getting ready to spend $75 million on a new TV ad campaign, which is really happening. 
and we really need money to help fight back against that. Can mm-hmm. you chip in five dollars? Like I'm trying to tie it back to a real thing because mm-hmm. if I'm just throwing these emails at you that are America is finished and it will descend into a hellscape if I don't get another hundred dollars by midnight, I don't want to write that stuff anymore. I think that there's a balance. It is hard to keep people's attention for sure, but I think that you owe it to people to write the messages really that if you really need the money, ask for it. If you don't really need it, don't really ask for it. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I agree. And I think to your point, which is really interesting about the difference generationally and our awareness, perhaps, of different strategies and tactics being used. Because yeah, every time I get an email like that in my inbox, I'm like, does anyone believe this? A lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. And to put a really specific example on it, I sent an email the other day that was like in this vein of email writing. And I want to be really clear about that. I'm criticizing this approach to copywriting, but I'm also often in the thick of it. Not to get like too churchy again, but yeah, sin is bad and I'm a sinner. I am doing these wrong things sometimes too. And I understand that it's easier said than done to get away from them. So if you're listening to this, don't think that I'm like high up on my like mountaintop. But I wrote an email the other day. It was in that political copywriting style with the list of the five buttons and the mm. clickbaity sentences and that sort of thing. I think I sent it to 127,000 people. And I think that five people gave money. Like I said, it's the chicken and the egg thing. The, the tactics have gotten more aggressive and the response rate has fallen through the floor to the extent that to anybody who's out there who's like looking at, I don't know, emails from Joe Biden or emails from Donald Trump. And you're like, maybe we should write emails more like those because I see on the news they're raising all this money and I get these emails all the time just to abuse you of those notions, right? (laughs) There are also stories going around the last several months about how, particularly on the Republican side, like revenue from online fundraising, we're really struggling with it as a community, not like individual people aren't struggling with it. Everybody is seeing their numbers down. Democrats less, but it's still, it's a challenge. Maybe you said what's something that surprised me in the beginning. One of the things that surprised me recently is I thought for a while there that this was a real growth. Every year it was like we were raising more and more money. And it seems the whole marketplace has reached peak. Maybe it's just a plateau and it'll go back up again. Maybe it's temporary. It could be due to inflationary pressures or economic stress or all kinds of things. But it's not panacea for your problem. I think what you're saying is really important. Hearing that conversion rate of that email is also, I think, really important for people to hear because it is hard to know on the other side of emails like that because we see them happening so often. And so many nonprofit fundraisers because our emails get sold in political fundraising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're getting tons of political fundraising emails every single day. And I think it gets into nonprofit fundraisers' heads a little bit, where every time they're sending any fundraising email, they feel like they're sending that political fundraising email, even though they're not, even though they're sending a really genuine story, asking for something true, trying to build that relationship with the donor, but they're holding the guilt of how they feel when they get 
that email. And so I'll frame it a little bit. So I have a very small email list that I use for my consulting work. And I say small, it's like 100 people. And it feels silly because I use the exact same software to send that email as I use to send 125,000 person emails. So sometimes I'm sending a blast for 100 people and I'm like way more nervous about it with 100 people because I care so much more. So it's very more personal to me. But if you get a 15% open rate or 20% open rate to 100,000 people, that's great. You should feel really good about that. But like my 100-person email list, I get 70% open rates to that. And what's amazing is that list size really doesn't matter. I know that's like a cliche. People say it all the time, but it like really doesn't matter. I have an account where the whole list size is like 500,000 people. But often we are only emailing 50 or 60,000 people because a huge chunk of those people will never open an email. But it's better to send an email to a small group of people who open it and actually give you money than to a massive group of people and then end up in the spam folder and then you don't even raise anything. There's a term for that, which is if I was doing consulting work and it was $50 an hour and I sold X hours, 250 bucks. But if I doubled that rate to $100 an hour and sold half as many hours, I could still make Mm. 250 bucks. I could either work half as hard and make the same money or I could work exactly the same hard and double my money. Mm. And that's kind of works with the list size shrinking. You think I'm not emailing as many people, but you might actually raise more where I was going with that about the sort of the nonprofit emails and the sort of the carrying the guilt and the stuff you just said. I think if I was running a nonprofit, I would email a lot, but I would almost never ask for money. I would email every week, every couple of days. Hey, let me tell you what's going on with this. Here's the thing we did. Hey, it's me, the executive director. Just want to let you know I had a really great event today and I went to this thing and we did this and we're making progress in our work. And I just want to let you know, hey, have a great weekend. Don't even put a donate button at the bottom of it. Just update people. And then when you ask them for money, you will have been updating them all this mm-hmm. time. And so they feel really familiar with what you're doing as you actually do have a story. You're doing work all the time. It's the same way that you would update, say, your Facebook account or your Instagram. You're just sharing things, not always mm-hmm. selling something. And every so often you're like, here's this hard sell that I want to make to you. Yes. Actually, what you're saying, I want to ask you a follow-up question to that. Because my gut is that when you're doing more of that, There's a lot of conversation, like we were talking about before, around how to keep copy really short in appeal emails. When you're trying to raise Mm -hmm. money, copy to be really short, pithy, catchy, and do that in a trust-based, ethical way. And I think that the way to do that is what you're saying right now. Where that gets harder is when you haven't built the relationship, built the content, been telling stories all year round, updating people. Not that you're going to send an email where you're referencing a bunch of stuff that maybe someone doesn't know, but you can use a type of shorthand and you can, you could even click back to other emails if they wanted to hear more about a story around something Mm -hmm. or it just gives you an ability to have those shorter appeal emails be more in alignment when you've done a lot of other communicating that has nothing to do with an ask. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good prompt. I have some guidelines that I try to use. One is you should only ever have one topic per email. This whole idea that in many nonprofits and even political parties in other parts of the world, in like Australia and these places, they still do this a lot. They'll send out a newsletter and it'll be a dump of every possible thing they could tell you and it comes once every two weeks or a month or something. Stop doing that. That's a terrible idea. Instead of sending one email with 15 things and it send 15 emails once every two days for the month. That's great because email is discreet. It doesn't have to be long. Mm-hmm. It's not worthless because it's not long. When I write a sort of personal email to somebody, just not a newsletter or a blast, I try to go for five sentences. Hey, thanks for taking time to read my email. This is what I want to tell you. I had this question. I appreciate any response. If you can make one, thanks. And you're out. Again, pithy, short attention span, get to the point, get out. 
again, using the example from before, maybe your nonprofit just had an event where you announced a thing or you fixed a thing. It's a Saturday morning, you need to clean up in an alley. It could be anything. Send me an email that Saturday afternoon. Say, hey, just wanted to update you on what's going on. This morning, we did a clean up in the alley. Look at this picture. Wasn't that cool? Thanks again for all of your support. And you're out. Don't ask for anything. Just mm. talk to people. What will happen is that by talking to people on a regular basis, they will learn to open the emails because they are interested to hear what you might say today. And so I said I have some guidelines. So one topic per email, pretty short emails I mentioned. An example that I used to always use with my clients when we were doing more of ladder engagement fundraising approach was nobody likes the friend who only calls when they need something, which is probably not like a revolutionary idea here, but bear that out. You have this friend from college. You never hear from them, except once every 12 months when they're moving into a new apartment. And they call you and they're like, hey, Ian, hope you're doing great. How are the kids? Everybody's good. Oh, hey, by the way, I'm having a moving party. You're going to have pizza and beer. Can you come help me move furniture on Saturday? And you're like, again? And eventually what happens is you see them call, anticipate that they're going to ask you for a big favor. They want to borrow your truck and you don't answer the phone. You send it to voicemail. Two days later, you call them back and be like, hey, everything okay? I saw you called. I was so busy. And they're like, oh, I needed help moving. That was on Saturday. Oh, brutal. And that's what happens with your emails. If every email is you saying, hey, I really need money. Hey, I really need money. Who wants to read those emails all the time? When I open my inbox, I have hundreds of emails often. And what I've been doing lately is I go to the promotions tab or the update tab, select all, scan them real quick. I'm like, mm, anything important? <laughs> Delete it. I don't even open them. Kill them all. Because it's too much. If you're running a nonprofit, if you're the digital director or whatever, I don't know the right term, you're a marketing person, fundraising person, you're thinking, wow, my open rates are down or people aren't giving me money when I ask for it. Stop asking so much. Ask less. And then when you've sent them five emails in two weeks, telling them all about the interesting things that are going on and varying the sender, one day it's from the executive director and one day it's from a volunteer and one day it's mm -hmm. from a board member. And then one day, the fifth email comes from the executive director and it says, Ian, sorry to bother you. I'll be right to the point. We have a fundraising deadline coming up. And if I don't raise $500 by tonight, I'm going to have to cut back on our plans for this weekend's event. I'm in a pinch. Can you help? I'll bet you raised like 1500 bucks because they think you mean it. Believe it now because mm -hmm. you're really asking. That's the big takeaway. And coming back to the original point, in politics, they stopped doing that because mm -hmm. the pressure to raise money every single day meant that they had to raise money every single day. The bean counters started to be like, well, what's our fundraising projections? How are we doing today? Did we hit our numbers? It was too sporadic. If you imagine it like a chart, it was like, mm -hmm. and they wanted it to be like this. But now all they do is send fundraising emails. I think what you're talking about right now also has some massive implications for nonprofits, this piece at the end around what metrics of success tell us we're leading towards our ultimate goal. Because what you said is also something I think about a lot in terms of how fundraisers are managed and who are the bean counters with the fundraisers, whether that's the executive mm -hmm. director or the board of directors. And especially when we're talking about the difference between hitting budget, fundraising goals, obviously a critical piece of it. But oftentimes what I see is that there aren't other metrics of success or behavioral metrics of success for the fundraiser. Sometimes there are at the bigger shops, like certain amount of meetings a month or a certain amount of communications or things like that. But often it's really just the fundraising numbers. And so then that drives decision-making, I think in this much more sort of scarcity-minded way. It also doesn't support 
habit building for the fundraiser because habits are built with much shorter feedback loops. And for nonprofit fundraising, it is not an everyday situation. They're being told to do this thing, but they're not going to get any feedback about that potentially even for three to six months. But there's no way that the nonprofit is tracking, celebrating those behaviors along the way. I'm curious when political fundraising was doing more of that ladder of engagement, what were some of the metrics that you all were looking at? It sounds like maybe some of them were related. Did they buy the sticker? But what were some other things that you were looking at to know you were on track? Yeah, the core numbers always boil down a handful of things, right? What's your email open rate look like? What does your click rate look like? The unique people who clicked on a link in an email. Are the emails bouncing? You know, like the five core email mm-hmm. stats. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately like money. But we used to focus a lot more on the click rate or people signing petitions. Mm-hmm. Were they taking sort of soft actions? That kind of thing was a lot more relevant. Okay. I want to make sure we have time to talk yeah, about yeah. text messaging. So tell me a little bit about how text message fundraising came to be in political fundraising. What shifts you've seen happen there and what works and what doesn't? So there's two kinds of text messaging. There's what's called peer-to-peer text messaging, and there's what's called application-to-peer, so P2P and A2P. Peer-to-peer messages are the ones that you get that look like they're from a person, like with a fully long number, and the A2P are from like the short code, like the one, two, three, four, five. I'm generalizing that's basically true. So peer-to-peer messaging got to be very popularized around the time, I guess that was probably 2016-ish, when Bernie Sanders was running for president. He started using this mostly for volunteer engagement at first. And the way that it works is really what tends to happen is you go, you buy a big list of mobile numbers. You go to a data broker. I did this once. I want the text message number for every registered voter in this state who I believe is likely to vote my way. And they'll give you all the mobile numbers because they have them. And so the way the law works is that you can text all those people, but a machine can't do it. A person has to text them. This is what makes it legal for me to text you. I can text anybody, myself. If I spammed you with a robot, that's against the rules. So they worked around the rules. And what they did was they said, what we're going to do is we're going to have a robot queue up all the texts, but the person has to hit send. And when I say hit send, I literally have done it before where I'm like two finger tapping <laughs> on the space bar. But because I manually hit the button, I sent it. The computer mm. didn't send it. It just queued it for me. So that's peer-to-peer texting. And why did that come to be? Well, because open rates on text messages are like nearly 100%. Well, at least they were. Everybody was reading everything. And so the ROI was tremendous because you're really getting people's attention. And it was largely unregulated. It's increasingly regulated now, but not by the government. It's being regulated by the cell phone carriers or what's called the CTIA, the Cell Phone Telecommunications something of America. It's an industry Mm. association. So they're regulating it. And then separately, you have the A to P messages. A to P messages are regulated by the FCC. And so the way that that works, generally, consult your attorney, because the fines are tremendous. So the way that it works is that somebody has to affirmatively say, yes, I'd like to get a text message. That's when you're on like a form and there's a checkbox that says, yes, mm-hmm. you may send me messages, that sort of thing, where you text coupon to one, two, three, four, mm-hmm. five, and they'll send you a coupon, that kind of thing. What we started to do there was we would say run ads on Facebook, or we would send these peer-to-peer messages, and we drive you through a petition or a donation page. And when you donated, we would opt you into the A to P messages. The advantage of the A to P messages is they're a lot cheaper to send and they send a lot faster. So maybe it costs you a penny per message on the A to P, but it costs you six or nine cents per message on the peer to peer, that kind of thing. Way cheaper. So there was a while where I was sending the short code messages and I would send out, I had built a list of 60,000 subscribers in that, which is a really big wow. A to P list. 
And it might cost me five or $600 to send one message out, but I was raising back $2,000 or $3,000. And so like, we sent a lot of them. But like anything, there are diminishing returns over time. And so it was all going great until it stopped. And it stopped like cold. And so it has largely gone in the ecosystem. It very quickly became that the text messages raised multiple times more money than the emails for a variety of reasons, mostly because they were cleaner lists with better engagement. But then I think what happened was everybody started to realize that and a handful of the agency partners who were really leading a lot of these fundraising efforts moved everybody over to text messaging mm. because they were getting so much better returns. They basically just brought all the email problems mm. to the text messaging and now the text messaging became saturated. Is there any data yet? I'd be really curious around retention numbers with donors that have been acquired via text message versus email. Do you know anything about that? I haven't any hard numbers about that. I think the churn rate when you send a text message is not totally dissimilar to an email. Your like unsubscribe rate is going to be one-tenth of one percent of the people you sent the message to are going to opt out every time, that sort of thing. I know that for a while there, at least, people who you send somebody a text message, they get it on their phone. The way the fundraising platforms often work is they have stored credit card information and stuff on mm-hmm. the platform. It's just True for Democrats, this is Act Blue, and for Republicans, it's Win Red. And conversion rates tend to be pretty high because they're already logged in from something they did before. Likewise, if you're like pre-checking, recurring, and that kind of stuff, the recurring opt-in rates are pretty higher on tax donations than they are on email, good, bad, or otherwise. That's just mm. true. The difference there in particular is that I've never seen it where there was like a flat rate pricing for the text messaging because there's like a unit cost to send each mm. message. So it's, you know, I mentioned like a penny or whatever mm-hmm. per message, three quarters of a penny, that kind of thing. Whereas some email systems or email platforms, like I usually use Nation Builder for email, and what they'll do is they'll give you some sort of cap, like a per mm-hmm. month number, like you can send this many emails and it'll be fine. Or in Nation Builder's case, it's often unlimited. There's a unit cost for them, but it's so low that they just absorb mm-hmm. it. Where I'm going with this is that there is an incentive to send a lot of email where like you're not disincentivized from it because it doesn't cost anything. Mm-hmm. You're already paying for it. But with the text messaging, there becomes this visceral feeling that, man, I just sent a $600 text message and it lost me money. And so what ends up happening is all of that stuff we said earlier about the pressure to hit your numbers every day, you start to feel this pressure. Every message I send has got to raise more money than it costs or else I'm just bleeding. And I don't know when I'm going to recoup it. And particularly to tie all these things together, you have the people whose job it is to raise money and they're being measured on performance. Often they're being paid commission. And so they're really incentivized to raise the money, which everybody's happy about in the beginning because the guy's making commission and the client, they're happy because they're paying for performance. They're mm-hmm. winning. But in the long tail, what ends up happening is there's the pressure to raise money all the time. You're only getting paid as the vendor when you're raising the money. And the client is like, I can't send text messages that cost me money. Your job is mm-hmm. to raise me money. If you're not raising money. You're costing me money. What are you mm-hmm. even doing? And so all these things are happening. We're talking a lot about political fundraising. To pivot that back to nonprofit fundraising, don't do these things, I think is what I'm saying. Interesting. Okay, I know we are almost out of time and I am so grateful for this conversation with you. So it sounded like you're shifting out of the political fundraising. What's next for you and where should folks find you and connect with you if they're interested in working with you? That is a wonderful question to ask. Thank you. I got into the political fundraising work in large part because I had been working with Nation Builder, which is a software company that provides people, database, email blasting, website hosting, and sort of donation tracking all kind of bundled up. And so I used to work at Nation Builder in 2012 and 2013. And then I left and I became a freelancer and I was helping Nation Builder customers. A lot of Nation Builder customers are political organizations. And that's how I found my way into political fundraising. And so as I'm 
de-emphasizing the fundraising work just because I need to get some distance from it personally. I am increasing the emphasis on nation builder consulting. So helping people use the software, make custom templates and things with it. So actually, incidentally, this morning, I launched on Nation Builder's custom theme marketplace, a donation page template. Usually, Nation Builder can host like your whole website. And what this is designed for is maybe you already have a website, you built it on Webflow or WordPress or something, but you're using Nation Builder anyway for the CRM and for the email. Mm-hmm. And you want to take your donations with Nation Builder's payments processing, which is run through Stripe. So I made landing pages that look very much like an Anadot or an ActBlue page that you can use just for that. And it's easy peasy and anybody can buy it and it's ready to go right out of the gate. So like that kind of stuff is what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to move more towards into. So on a asynchronous basis, making templates and that kind of thing. And then on top of that, there's like some consulting and training. And I work with people by the hour or on a monthly basis. And we said where to find me. IanPatrickHines.com is the website where you can just Google Ian Hines and you'll find me. Perfect. I will make sure all the links are below and in the show notes and everything as well. Thank you so much for this conversation today. I really appreciate all your insight and your time. I had fun talking to you. Thank you for asking. All right. I know not everything inside this episode was easy to hear, but sometimes we need to sit with the hard advice or the uncomfortable story to force us to reflect on how we're showing up and what it looks like to fundraise with deep alignment. Here are the top takeaways I've grabbed from this conversation. Number one, quick campaigns can take on an impersonal bottom line driven undertone that erodes trust and leads to a self-perpetuating sense of scarcity. Number two, Time boxing is a great tool when it's associated with something that feels real and concrete to donor prospects. Number three, writing copy is hard and burnout is real, especially when the mandate to grab eyeballs and generate response grinds on and on. How do you nurture yourself to be able to continue writing meaningful copy? Number three, it's better to send an email to a small group of people who open it and actually give then to a massive group of people and it goes directly into their spam folders. As we learned from Seth Godin as well, spam is not our friend. Number five, communicate with donors on a regular basis, but use restraint with the donate button. Number six, stick to one idea at a time in your communications. Newsletters with 15 items are unwieldy and ineffective. It would be better to separate those 15 items into 15 different emails. There are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Ian and Nation Builder. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.